Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is Over the Top Cycling in Boulder, Colorado. Very happy to have Joe Barr calling in from Ireland today. Joe, uh, how is it over there? Hi, George. Uh, thank you for having me. It's, uh, well, from a weather point of view, it's uh, quite stormy. Uh, we got a lot of really strong wind here in Ireland at the moment, a bit unusual. Um, and we've had a lot of rain as well, which is not unusual. <laughs> but uh, to have both in June is... Uh, it's, it's not a normal year. The weather has been very poor here. And the temperature is still very, very low. Uh, best we're hoping for at the moment is around 12, 14 degrees. It's, it's terrible for June. Like so. Now, you've really started making a name for yourself in the uh, ultra-cycling area, but tell us how you actually got your start in cycling. Well, <laughs> we've got to go back a long number of years ago. Uh, I was, well, in, in cycling terms, I was mainstream uh, international rider in Ireland. I started off at ground level, club level, just like anyone else. And uh, I made my way quite early to, to, to represent the country. Um, you know, and I really have junior categories or whatever. It was that we were pretty much in with the seniors. So, you know, I, I had to swim pretty quickly or I was going to drown. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it worked out okay. You know, it, it, it was a, it was a pretty harsh upbringing, at, you know, 8, 17, 18 years of age, but, but it, it, it didn't really do me any bad favours, it was all good. Um, I, I was very fortunate in Ireland that I came up in an era where, you know, I, I was in the same era as the Sean Kellys, the Stephen Roaches, you know, it was a big time in Irish cycling at that time, and, uh, and, and you know, the, the general public, not just the cycling fraternity, but the general public were very much uh, in support of it. And we had a huge international professional race here called the Nissan Classic. And it gave Ireland, uh, because we had all the top professional riders come here. So all the amateurs who were on the international team at that stage, was um, we were all looking to try and make our name. And, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us done quite well, some better than others. Obviously, we have Sean and we have Stephen at the top of that pile. But we also had Paul Kimmage, we had Alan McCormick, we had Paul McCormick, we had quite a number. John Brady, who rode for Seven Eleven. Uh, there was quite a, a, a big fraternity of Irish riders at that time who who were, were racing in mainstream professional peloton. So there was a good uh, good depth of interest. Certainly, a lot more than there is now, to be fair, uh, and, and certainly. A, we had a bigger depth, a uh, 
bigger pool on depth of writers than, than we do now. Like, and uh, why do you think that happened? I mean, there were some huge names out in professional cycling from Ireland. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, at that time, you know, I remember back when you know, obviously Sean had had already gone to Belgium and and, and he was living with Herman Nice and his wife over there at Billboarda near Brussels and. Stephen and Paul uh, went, they were heading for ACBB at that time, which was the leading team in, around Paris. So they were, they were all cutting a huge trough. And it, it gave, you know, the, the guys like myself coming behind it, it gave us a feeling that there was an opportunity. Uh, there was a lot went, there was a lot went to France at that time because the door got opened there by, by Sean and Stephen and whatever. So, but a lot returned as well. But they, they, they remained as good, a good, uh, base of Irish riders and whatever, but there were there was fifteen, maybe twenty guys who who done exceptionally well. Obviously not at the level Sean was at because I mean Sean was just you know he he's best rider in the world for so long. Like you know I mean I don't think it is possible really other than you know the likes of France or the centralized countries in, in European cycling like to produce that level of rider on, on the sheer numbers that they do. For example. Like even France, like you, know, you have to go back a bit now before you get someone like a Bernardino and and so on and so forth. Like they don't produce that level in abundance. They're they're, they're sparse. Like so, Sean was of that very elite level, uh, and and then you know obviously like you look at Stephen, his results were Stephen's results were probably equal to Sean uh, as well. Like winning the Tour and the World Championship. And, and, and the Why was it that Sean seemed more popular, though, than Stephen? It was almost like the man from the country versus the man from the city. Yeah, they were, they were and well, in my opinion, anyhow, like, I mean, I, I know both of them relatively well, like, and, uh, you know, I think that they were just polar opposites, really. Uh, you know, Sean fitted in so well with Belgium because, like, he came from a farming background, and, and you know, Sean, you know, came from a just hard-working uh, ethical background that he came from, like so. I mean, he fitted very well with that Belgian culture, where you know it was the view of cycling as a peasant sport or whatever. He really fitted in there. Where Stephen was much more polished, and you know, he fitted the the image better. They probably uh, so you have these two polar opposites. But I think that in, in their own words, they they they, they done Ireland a huge a huge uh, service, like in, in both of those worlds, because. You know, they were both very successful in very different ways. And how influential were they in your cycling? Well, without a doubt, I, you know, uh, it was 1985. Um, we have, like, the national series here. Like, it, it's been rebranded over the years, different names and whatever. But basically what it is, it's a series of all the the, the classic races that we have in the country. And in 1985, I won that overall series, and Stephen presented the prize to it uh, whenever he was sponsored by the Cox Reef and... Uh, that was sort of my first introduction to him, and uh, through that meeting and just getting to know him, you know, not not ex- not extremely well, but I got to know his brother Lawrence, who also rode the Tour de France uh, very well, um, and because Lawrence was more in in my generation, whereas Stephen had sort of was in front of me, um, and I became very friendly with Lawrence. I still am today, and his wife, uh, Eileen. Um, you know, they're they're from the centre of the country, and. Uh, you know, people tend to forget that Lawrence also finished the Tour de France. So um, yeah. that, that was really my first introduction to meeting these guys. And the latter years, I I got to know Sean. Um, I was fortunate. I rode, oh, I rode ten uh, World Championship cyclocross uh, 
places and uh, in one of those I remember I stayed in the house of Herman Nice and his wife Elise where Sean was grew up and uh, I mean their house was like uh, I remember being in the conservatory of it and pretty much every jersey from every race that Sean won uh, all the trophies even the Paris Bay trophy were all in their conservatory like it, it was just a it was just a, an iconic week for me personally to be you know to be in that environment and, and Herman Nice driving me to the start of the race so it was uh, it, it was a, it was it was a very privileged time in my life and you know to meet that caliber of people like and, and be in that world and now what do you I think went to, has changed you have a writer like you know for instance who did extremely well in the classics uh, and also was incredible in the the multi-day tours how come you don't see that type of writer anymore I think it's I think it's it's, it's just the way to me cycling in my opinion has, has become a bit clinical and it's just we don't have guys who anymore they're, they're all specialists they're, they're, they all specialize in one aspect of it and it I think it's more by by chance and by than by plan that we, we we find these kind of guys who can do all all of it, and it's just how the season is structured now as well, and you know the way the grand tours are fitted in, and, and I think it also the way the commercial sponsorship, the way they ask is from the financing of it, it makes it very difficult for someone to to be as broad and and what they do, like the likes of Pino did and whatever, or even Greg Lamont, for, for example. Uh, although probably even Greg is probably you know more uh, more like the way it is now because he specialised in the Tour de France and whatever. Like and it was he was back in an era as well, like where all the English speaking writers like himself and Steve Barr and people like that were you know it was at the beginning of that era when uh, you know, American writers and English speaking writers were starting to make their way. You know, you, you Robert Miller and uh, Sean Yates and. There was that fraternity was there, even Malcolm Elliott, like you know, who wrote for Fagor, like was those guys were those guys were you know, the beginner of that era really, that were not alone were they just writing there, but you know, the world media was starting to to, to talk about them being there. Whereas before that, you know, the English speaking writers other than the likes of Tom Simpson or whatever, you might have heard of Tom Simpson, but you wouldn't have heard of all the droves of other writers who were there. Right. Uh, you know, it, it was just the way it was. It was a very different area. Like well, I went to Brittany and uh, in, in the 80s, like in 86, 87, uh, to ride in, in Lyon, like in, the culture in Brittany was unbelievable, like they had more registered racing cyclists in Brittany than there was in the rest, the complete rest of France put together. So, you know, that's, there, that's where Eno came from and I was fortunate to meet a family called the Trehan family. Um, their son Roger is actually one of the directors for said this in uh, Procontinental and uh, they were friendly with Bernard Hino because they were hunting partners and I remember one evening in their home in a uh, small village outside Lyon called Plumer. I remember Bernard Hino coming to visit them like and uh, also going down to to uh, the Pyrenees where they had a they had a ski uh, a studio in the ski station at the top of the called the Pierre de Sud uh, and uh, the next door one was the one that Bernardino stayed in. Like so, it was a great again another just a, a real privilege of mine to be to be able to be involved in that that world, see what it was like, and try and understand it. You know, I was never I was never in the caliber of, of, of a Stephen or, or a Sean or, or not even close. Um, you know, but I still was good enough to be able to. Go out and, and 
just lived the life of being being a full time rider. There was uh, it was a good time. It was it was great. This is over the top cycling. We're visiting with Joe Barr from Ireland. Now, Joe, what was the trajectory of your racing career? You started very young, went through the yeah. national team, and then uh, how yeah. how was well, pro cycling for you? Well, you know, I suppose there's two answers to that. Like it was uh, back in that day, there was a big wake up call when you went. Uh, you know, you were winning and you were doing very well in your own country. And you know, I remember going when I went to France at the start. You know, I was winning. Like I'd won stages in the national tour here. I've, I've been the podium in the national road championship. I've been multiple times world champion. I've been champion in cross. I've done everything. And, I, and when I went there, I, I struggled to finish the race. <laughs> uh, it was uh, it, it was just such a huge uh, learning curve of what was going on. You know, even when I went in the first training camp uh, down in the south in Beirut with the team. It was the team I went on on the start. Like was uh, it was all full time amateurs then. Like and we were all looking to try and get in a, you know, a pro team. And that time in Brittany, you know, you had the Credit Agricole team or the Z Peugeot team as it was. And you had all, all of these teams that that have now all changed sponsors or whatever. We were always looking for a place, try and find a place there, because we knew it was the mecca. But you know, I was okay when I was in the training camp. I was riding as good as anyone else. But when I came back up to Brittany to start the first set of races or whatever, it was just like a huge culture change. It was. Uh, yeah, I remember, I remember in uh, one race it was really really funny. I remember I remember coming out the back to go on the bus <laughs> with, with Chris Boardman, <laughs> and and it was uh, you know there was days that you were around iconic riders who were just getting shelled out, and it, uh, I I just struggled with it at the start. It was a huge learning curve, and obviously you know the rest of the stories that we all read about in today's world, we all know we was in existence now and, and obviously had its explanation for some of the behavior like but at the end of the day it, it was still a, it was still a very very difficult uh, environment um, especially coming because you know back then we didn't have the luxury of the internet and Skype and all of that so <laughs> even making a simple telephone call call home whenever you were you know isolated away from your own home and whatever you know, I remember standing in coin boxes, like trying to slot in French francs to be able to talk home and stuff like that. It was, uh, it was a hard, it was a hard time, and uh, you know, it's no different for any of the other writers. That's just my experience of it. Uh, but uh, you know, I wouldn't have changed any of it for the world. It was, it was one of the greatest times in my life, and a great experience. And, and you know, I, I rode where where I could, and I got the results where I could, and and, and survived for a long time. I have to say, because I went, I went in front. And we ended up in Belgium, and Belgium didn't really suit me at all. I had an English-speaking team that uh, the British champion at that time, Tim Harris, had put together, and uh, we were we were living in Mechelen, just outside Brussels, where the team was located. And uh, the manager was a guy called Alain Deroux, who was actually uh, probably would have been the right-hand person for Freddie Martins in his day. And uh, Alain was the director sportif, and cobbles just didn't suit me at all and it sort of it was the last year really of, of riding with pros and um, it wasn't a, that wasn't a good experience for me to be fair uh, but the rest of it was because the rest of it suited me it was it was hilly and whatever so it was good it was a good good time you know but I, I would have preferred not to have finished in, in, in Belgium I would have preferred to possibly finished in France again or maybe in Spain or somewhere like that but that was it. that was the way it was and that was it now I, came... I I first heard of you in ultra I believe it was in 09 or 2010 uh, from race around Ireland 
And what did yeah, you uh, do between yeah. your pro career and starting your, your interest in ultra? There's there's a big gap there. Yeah, well, uh, you know, when I, I finished really pretty much uh, really, uh, because when I came back uh, from Europe, I raced maybe one, one and a half seasons back with the amateurs again. And I just got to the stage where, you know what, I just had done the journeyman bit and 45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Because I had started so young, I had done so much, and I'd won pretty much everything that I could. You know, I was I was on the podium in the national tour, as you know, and I, I was on the podium in the national championship. I never won either of the two. Like the rest, I did, and so there was little or nothing left for me. So I just decided at that stage. It was time to just go away gracefully, and uh, that was like around 2000. And uh, I kept riding my bike, and you know, I'd done some sporty riding, and you know, cycling changed as you know. Uh, it went through this transition where you know, you have mass partition, participation events and whatever. So, cycling, you know, from how we understood it originally, like changed drastically over that period of time, uh, and uh, I in 2007, um, I got my ride. I had children like normal people do after your racing career is finished. And uh, my second son was born uh, with cancer. And uh, that was the probably the, the big dynamic change that came in me as a human being. Like in uh, two years, I, I spent, well, my wife and myself spent like in that world trying to save his life pretty much. And uh, in 2009, because of being involved in that with the children or whatever, I decided to do a a charity event, really, just to raise funds for for, for the children's charity. And uh, uh, the, ironically, uh, the race around Ireland was a designated round of the Ultra World Cup that had just been that had been had been brought to Ireland. Like the the race around organizers, the race around Ireland organizers had agreed like to bring it there as a round qualifier, and it was very very new for the culture here. Um, no, no one really understood it, to be fair. Um, however, I seen it as a, as an event that I could ride a bike for a long distance and that potentially could have media coverage and potentially give me a platform to have a fundraising event for, from my own perspective. And uh, I entered the race around Ireland and was ultra marathon. I was complete and absolute rookie of the of the <laughs> highest caliber. You know, I was going there to race a fifteen hundred mile race, like I was going to ride a hundred miles. It was it was a bit crazy how I, I, I put it together and you know, I had way too many people and my whole understanding of it was just way off. But but um, ultimately 
it's a bike race, and, and, and if, you know, if you've got the wherewithal and the want and the will to want to go and do that, you, you will. And, and I was up against Fabi Biafsalo at the time; he was world world champion in ultramarathon. And it ended up just a huge race between himself and myself, and uh, and I, I ended up that I won race one in Ireland uh, as a rookie with no understanding <laughs> and no plan, <laughs> um, except just ride as fast as I could for as long as I could, and uh, that was my introduction to Ultra Martin. And then, how did that work as a fundraiser for you? The, the, the fundraiser went, went very well because uh, basically what happened was that you know. The story that I was telling, or the awareness that I was creating, went from being just some guy doing another charity event to the, at having a sporting story attached to it. So the media picked up on the sporting story of of probably me, you know, my son being sick, um, and then coming back to do this, and then beating the world champion. So they they produced here in Ireland. They produced a, actually in the UK, they produced a thirty-five minute. Uh, BBC One and BBC Two documentary, which was uh, national TV coverage, it went out. It was only scheduled to be screened uh, two nights, on one one night on each each channel on a Tuesday and a Thursday night. And uh, the first night they screened it, they they had over a hundred thousand viewers uh, in Ireland, which is pretty. It was pretty much on a par with the best of your Friday night type. Uh, wow. Programs so. And the same happened the next night. So it ended up that they they screened it eight times in total, uh, which changed how the whole thing seen me again. So all redirected and and re to this world. So I I decided that and so on and so forth. Started to really think then potentially maybe I could do the race across America because many many years ago. Uh, Way back in the mid '90s, I, I actually sat at my table after I had broken a national place-to-place record here in Ireland, which is the two furthest points we have on the island of Ireland, which is right in the very south and right in the very north. And uh, I remember writing a handwritten letter to a gentleman called John Pertry um, at Race Across America, asking him if uh, my breaking of my National place to place record, which was 400 miles, would be acceptable to allow me in the race across America. <laughs> <laughs> to which he wrote back, I have to say, and said, "Yes, certainly." <laughs> and uh, and that was my introduction in the mid 90s. And uh, I can't just remember the name of the French writer who had come from mainstream. Uh, he had gone uh, and actually won the race across America. So I realized at that point that it was possible for a mainstream person to win this type of an event. But then just circumstances, lack of sponsorship, whatever, the years just drifted by and, it, and, and the opportunity disappeared and uh, on, and then just out of the blue again it appeared with this Ultra Martin thing in Ireland and I started to pursue some, you know, we screwed some commercial packages together and I went on a pretty much another effort at Race Across America that wasn't really that different to the one that I had done in Race Around Ireland, to be truthful. <laughs> 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 uh, which, which, as you can expect, crashed and burned <laughs> quite heavily. Um, and I got altitude sickness in Colorado in, in 2012, and that, that was the finish of it, really. Uh, but you came back last year and did very, very well. Uh, what was the difference? Yeah. What did you learn? I, I, I stopped 
I stopped to think like mainstream racer, and, and I started to think, and um, I, I changed, and I, I even changed position on bike, and I concentrated a lot more on, on, on staying on the bike more, because my, my problem always was that I was fast enough in the sections I was on the bike, but I was too, I was spending too much time off the bike, uh, and, uh, you know, when I I started to get educated by the world guys when they would continually talk about doing 40 hours or 50 hours or whatever. My mindset just couldn't compute that. I, I struggled with those sort of numbers. and uh, But I worked at it. I knew it was good for 24 hours because obviously I'd done that before or whatever. And, um, I, I just started then to really work at building up the hours and, and, and trying not to focus so much on going so fast, go a bit slower, but go longer. Um, and I worked on altitude, and I, you know I got a better understanding of saturation, and, and and then obviously the temperature with the desert and stuff like that. And small tips like some Mike Patson and people like that has, has been very very helpful and influential on me, like in Ultra Martin, because they give you small tips that you know that sometimes you think that they're not that important. But I remember in 2012 I met Mark Patson just. And, uh, we were just, I was talking to him because I'd beat him in Race Around Ireland. But I think it was just the way that I had rode in Ireland and the way the country was. It didn't really suit Mark. It was so hilly. Um, but I knew he was exceptionally good at Ram. And uh, he told me, you know, just to be very careful on how to behave in the desert in the nighttime because how I behaved was, was very uh, important as to how I could continue and not get sick. And, uh, um, I started to really take on board and, and work, you know, as part of a strategy and a plan and whatever. And, you know, I've still a long way to go, but, um, you know, I know I know I can finish Race Across America and I'm, I can be relatively strong. You know, I have to just accept the fact that I'm older now. Like, and I, you know, I'd, I'd like to be racing Christoph Strasser, but, you know, I don't think that's possible. Now, uh, I, I do have to say one thing. You did Race Across America last year in white shorts. And you actually stayed clean, and you got some comments. It was people were like, "Only a pro like Joe Barr could get a, get away with that." I'm just so you know you know when you come from that 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 level of thinking whereby you're always very I was always very mindful of uh, the commercial aspect of what what I was doing because it ultimately there was people you know who were prepared to believe in you and prepared to pay for their brand be uh, you know advertised in a certain way and you know, I remember in the very very early days um, when I was just a kid really like I, I remember uh, in Ireland here we had uh, one of the head the headquarters of Raleigh which is as you know is a global iconic brand and uh, uh, Raleigh had had a as well as Nottingham and the special the special division section uh, that was in outside of Nottingham in a place called Elixton uh, they also had a huge uh, facility here in Ireland, in Dublin. And I remember making my way uh, by bus <laughs> at that time to go and see the managing director there. And, uh, you know, I would, whenever Rally were at the, in their heyday and they were sponsoring the pro team in Europe, um, people who understand that brand will remember it as the old iconic red, black and yellow rallies. Oh, yeah. And, uh, they, you know, they, 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 would, they had, you know, they were winning the World Championship at that time. It was, and, uh, then it changed, the sponsorship changed to Panasonic, and they changed their colors and their brands, and they went to white with the blue fronts. And, you know, you had people like Phil Anderson and, and uh, 
on paper and people like Ali were writing and not team and not many people know but I I was the only other writer uh, that had sponsorship directly from Relic Factory at that time other than the Panasonic team and uh, they, they painted all my bikes they couldn't obviously paint the frames the same as the Panasonic team with the blue on them because of the contract but mine were painted all pearlescent white I still have some of them yet to be fair I kept them the 753s but John Beattie, who was the managing director and CEO, told me that when I asked him if he would sponsor me in a very, very raw way, uh, I, re I really didn't know, to be fair. I had absolutely no education on how to behave, but I asked for it. And uh, and then when he said yes, I asked him what it was that he wanted from me. And, and, and he made a statement that just stuck with me the rest of my life in, in cycling. And he said, all I want you to do is take them to the start line every day like you got them in the showroom. And that, that's how I behaved from that point onwards. I, I have this thing that if someone is, is, is willing to fund you and support you to do what you're doing, then the least that you can do is, is deliver that brand in the best way that you can. So um, it's, it's probably one of those labels that has, <laughs> that has dragged along with me my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> Everywhere I go, that I, have, I just have an absolute obsession with, if my bike's gone out in the morning, it doesn't matter what the state is today. It goes out like I came out of the showroom, and so does my clothes. End of. That's that's everybody who works with me in the team knows that's the way it is. So we were we were doing laundry like you wouldn't get your head around on Race Across America. <laughs> oh, I saw you in Durango. And I saw you at the start, and I saw you at the finish. And I have never seen white shorts say stay so pristine. <laughs> uh, Brian Walsh is. Uh, Good lady Stacy made the same comment to me. They were taking pictures of my ass <laughs> somewhere in Kansas. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it's it's all part of like you know. But it, it, there is a serious note to it. But I, I, I suppose over the years, like I I just live up to that now. Like, but there is a serious note to it because you always do like to to give the best for the sponsors. And even when I came back from this across America. Small things like that actually started to really make a lot of sense because I had a lot of feedback coming back from the company. So we were saying, you know, you know, we were really pleased with the exposure we got and the branding and so on and so forth like that. So well, and while I was, you know, sort of kidding about the white, you always look very professional. And, uh, I mean, I think that's great that you bring that to Ultra. And we've got about a minute and a half to go, but... What uh, what's still remaining for you to do in in ultra cycling? Well, I'm definitely coming back to race across America. You know, obviously, when you're a European rider, it's so expensive to do that. Uh, so to do it every year is not possible for me. Uh, but I'm definitely going to go back next year. Uh, at the moment, now we're all we're all getting set. We have a place to place record here again that we're doing in two weeks time, and then we're coming along then to do uh, race across Oregon, which is new for me, and uh, I'm looking forward to going to Portland and. And, and doing that race, and um, if we can, if we can get some more budget, we, we may actually look at the Furnace Creek 508 as well, and uh, and see and see how we go there, and then we we'll start putting all the all the stuff together for going back to race across America again. I'm going. I'm also going to go back to the race across Italy, which is a fantastic race, and uh, I like think that I could go there maybe in two years' time because I want to try and struggle on for another two years because I'm getting very close to getting to this magic million mile. I think if I could, if my body keeps functioning for maybe another two, three years, I can reach that that milestone. That would be, I could easily walk away then. 
You've hit a million miles. Wow. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty exclusive club, like, and I'm getting very close, like, so, you know, to stop this close to, I never really thought about it until about two years ago, and you know, it was pointed out to me, and then I started to really think about it, and I thought, well, that would be a great way, you know, like I'm, I've now got a race license for 42 years, so it's a long time. <laughs> Joe Barr, thank you very, very much for joining us on Over the Top Cycling. I really appreciate your time. It's been great visiting with you. Thank you for having me. Over the Top Cycling, Boulder, Colorado. I'm George Thomas. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.